All right, everybody, don't drop that fast forward button. The sponsorship roll call is about to begin. Energy Consulting Limited provides complete project management and general contracting services to a variety of private sector clients on both commercial and residential construction projects. They act as the owner's representatives through the planning, design, budgeting, scheduling, construction, and occupancy processes. Clients appreciate their open, honest, and flexible approach to achieving their project goals. Although they're located in Surrey, BC, Energy works on projects all over the province, including the growing cities of the north and the beautiful coastal towns of Vancouver Island. They're always excited to explore new places and develop relationships with professionals wherever their clients' interests may be. Abacus North is a firm that specializes in mortgage banking solutions for complex projects. In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions with a focus on fostering long-term relationships. They are a multifaceted organization that services domestic and international clients with their mortgage banking needs. Complex financing solutions require analytical thinking well beyond a typical mortgage broker relationship. As a result, they focus on providing engineered solutions for their client. Their key differentiation strategy is that they assist clients in actively managing the capital stack in order to minimize borrowing costs while maximizing flexibility. Abacus North focuses on national and global opportunities. Ascentia CPA has a team of new-gen chartered professional accountants that are dedicated to advancing companies using expertise combined with emerging technologies. The team at Ascentia will implement the latest accounting technologies, allowing you to not only run a business, but to run a smart business that will excel in your industry. Their focus is to provide growth-centric, value-added, and timely accounting services for businesses, as well as individuals across Canada. Unlike standard accounting firms, by embracing cloud-based software, the team at Ascentia will provide you with real-time accounting information on a secure platform that is accessible anywhere at any time, allowing you to make better informed decisions and gain more controlled overview of your financial data. The reliability and expertise you will experience with the professionals at Ascentia will assist you in the preparation of corporate and personal tax returns, financial statements, bookkeeping, government filings, tax and estate planning, as well as business advisory services. For more information on the advantages of online accounting and to book a complimentary meeting online, be sure to visit ascentiacpa.ca. We are I. I'm just going to hop right into it again for the next time because we've tried this now four, five, six, seven times. Uh, Sparrow, 
Welcome to We Are I. Let's hope that we don't freeze or the call gets dropped or anything along the way. Um, again, thank you for taking your time out today and coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. Oh, that's as far as we've got in the last like 10 minutes. I'm so happy that we've actually covered some ground. Um, so what initially really intrigued me is because obviously with you being a psychotherapist, you understand the psychology, how we get into these you know, patterns, especially when it comes to nutrition and we kind of imprison ourselves in these concepts with eating. We also have a vast amount of knowledge when it comes to nutrition as well. Then I started looking into you a little bit more and realizing from three, you had this, and I believe it was three, you had this locked in concept that you were going to become a psychotherapist. And then you also went through a pre-traumatic event when you were young and you basically what seemingly has just crushed life up into this point, because I read that kind of rant you went on about career wise on Facebook about a week ago. And it is astonishing what you've accomplished in the short amount of years that you've been entrenched in your career. So um, I want to cover it all in like the next hour and a half to the best that we can, because I believe stories like yours as a whole are incredibly valuable um, just because people need to be able to see that contrast and realize that there's life after uh, trauma and traumatic events. Um, but then also just like how nutrition plays such a big role in that and how our traditional system in North America is massively failing us because there's nothing about prevention. It's just all about reaction and our society is being stuck in that. So that mouthful being said, uh -huh. let's roll. Bring us back to like how at three you were, you knew exactly what you were going to be. And from three, now we're here today and you've literally lived that goal every day since. Okay. Well, to start out, I didn't know I wanted to be a psychotherapist at age three. I knew about age 12. At age three was when my life dramatically changed. Okay. That's when I was abducted by my biological father. My brother and I were both. And I was about three and my brother was two years younger than me. So he was one, he was a baby. And so at age three was when I became a caretaker. So that's kind of the seed that was planted in me from a very early age that I, it's really kind of all I knew was how to take care of other people. So, um, you know, when we were little and life was good, I loved my little brother, but I was jealous of him. He got more attention. You know, we argued, you know, I remember, you know, having those experiences. But then as soon as my mom was out of the picture, I became his mom. I became his stand-in mom in many ways, you know, as much as a three-year-old could be. But, you know, it was pretty... I was pretty advanced for my age and, and I, I stepped in pretty quickly. I would bathe him, I would feed him, and, you know, make sure he was okay. So at age three, that's really when my life just completely changed. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's like, and like, no, that, that was just straight instinct. Like you went into, it's like, is that three? I have three daughters and I know how they've all been at three. And for them to be responsible for taking care of one another and even like trusting that, like, I couldn't even imagine. So like, was that just, again, like, was it straight instinct or like, were you like truly forced in that position? Like there, like, even though your dad abducted you guys, there was like, he had no influence in like helping taking care of your brother and like that responsibility rested solely upon you. I wouldn't say it was solely upon me, but it was largely upon me. My dad drank. Uh, he, he really wasn't an involved parent at that time, especially. And I think I just, you know, knew from watching my mom, you know, I did the best that I could with him. And there were, I had an aunt and an uncle around. I mean, they were minimally involved. I had some cousins around, but I took responsibility for him, like personally. It was like, no, he's my brother. 
I'll do this, I'll do that. And, you know, even my stepmom eventually entered the picture and she would tell me stories about how she would try to do things for him. And I would say, nope, nope, I'm doing it back off. He's, you know, he's my brother kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. How long did this last for? It lasted for a little over a year. So we were what on was the situation like coming out of that? Like, was it um, like was it pretty traumatic again? Like, uh, like were the police involved? What you know? Like, how did you guys? And did you go back with your mom? Like, what was the scenario like after the year? Yeah, you know, it's so intricate that I, it would take me hours to explain it. It is in the book, luckily, but I'll give you the gist. So the gist was uh, that after a year. I was returned to my mom first. There were no police involved. Other family members got involved. Uh, And then a few months later, my brother was returned. And for me, it was traumatic because I was told my mother had died. And so seeing her, uh, I knew it was her. I never forgot what she looked like, but I couldn't believe it was her. Mm. So I had this wall that sort of, uh, just kind of went up that like, well, I want to believe it's her, but I don't know if it's her. And by that time she was pregnant with my younger sister and I was jealous of that too. I was like, wait a minute, you know, your kids were taken and all of a sudden you're having more. How come you didn't try to come find us? But you know, as a four-year-old, I think it was four or four and a half, I couldn't articulate that, but I, knew, I could identify the feeling now looking back. And so, and my mom cried and she was hysterical. She just melted. And so for me that day, I remember specifically, like I just bottled up. because I was like, well, I can't really have any feelings. She's the one having all the feelings, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So like, how did this like translate like after the fact? So like, you're only four and a half years old, like obviously, like, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, you know, up until about five, you know, like, we're really kind of like understanding and developing like our personality and you know, like what the how that's going to shape us. But obviously, like during that time, you went through experiences that, you know, like most teenagers or young adults don't even go through. And like, you're going through this at such a formidable time of your life. What was the impact of that after? So like, now you've learned to bottle up your feelings, you learn to hold your feelings inside, you know, like you, you became a caregiver of your brother. You thought like your mom, you know, is dead. And you found out that she's alive. Now she's having other kids. Like what happened after that? Like how, what was life like after? Did you, did you turn to food? Did you turn like, how did you manage to cope after that? Yeah. Oh gosh. Let's see. Well, so what was really fascinating is, so by this time, my mom who had been living in New York, she had gotten remarried to her high school sweetheart who came back from Vietnam and he was very addicted to alcohol. And later I found out addicted to heroin. So uh, we moved to New England, to New Hampshire to live with his parents. So we lived with them for a while and then we got our own place. And, you know, my mom was never the same. So I think the only thing that really saved me was the first part of my life up until the time I was taken, my mom and I were very close she was a very good mom. She was very, you know, nurturing, caretaking. I had a great life. My grandparents, my mom's parents were in the picture. I just had a very stable, good life. And so I think if it hadn't been for that, it probably wouldn't be the person I am today. I have to say that. Uh, but when I went back with her, she wasn't anything like that. She wasn't nurturing. She wasn't kind. She was very checked out. She uh, really wanted nothing to do with me after that. It was very interesting. I, I can think of just a handful of times that she even would engage in conversation with me. She just was really checked out. 
So, um, was she, was she scared to connect with you again? Like, because she had lost you, like what was, what was told to her? Like, did, was the story told her that like, just your, your dad abducted you guys and like, that was it? Like, did she just disconnect emotionally from, you know, like you and your brother, because she may have never thought that she would see you guys again. And, you know, was scared to be able to reestablish that connection. You know, I'm not sure. My mother herself had a very rough life. She was a victim of incest, abuse in her home. I mean, it was just a really, really tough life. And I think that her getting her kiddos taken away really started the ball rolling with her mental illness that later developed and her disassociating. So when I was abducted from her, my dad assaulted us. He ambushed us in a parking lot. So he came up from behind and he grabbed me and he threw my mom literally across the parking lot. So it was a very violent sort, you know, experience for both of us. So, I mean, she, you know, she knew how it happened. I don't know if she, she probably did have to disconnect emotionally in order to just get through the day. Um, I'm not sure that's why we couldn't reconnect. You know, she didn't have that experience with my brother. She was very, you know, when eventually she got my brother back, she was very doting and loving towards my brother. But me and the other kids, like, not so much. So, uh, yeah, so she kept, you know, she had some more kids. She had my sister, who's five years younger than me. Uh, and then several years later, she had my other sister. And, yeah, it just early on, I just fell into that role because she just, she wouldn't take it. She wouldn't take that role of being the caretaker. Oh, so now you became the caretaker to three kids instead of just one? Yes, over time, for sure. For sure. Talk about growing up and just like a matter of like the first few years of your life, you basically went from three to like 20 overnight. Yeah. You know, when you, when you talk, when I talk about it, it, it doesn't, it's like, did that really happen? Yeah. I mean, it did. And this was the seventies and nobody cared. Um, you know, you just, Everybody had their story. Nobody really talked about it. I didn't go around in school telling people this story. I mean, just never discussed it. It just was the way it was. And, you know, we, we grew up with not a lot of money. And, um, you know, my stepdad, he, he stopped using drugs as far as I know. Although I do, now that I look back, when I wrote the book and I wrote some, um, some things that had happened, I go, you know what? Maybe he was still on drugs. Like, I honestly don't know. Because there were times, like, he just couldn't wake him up for anything. He was out. But, you know, he never gave up alcohol. And, you know, we had we just had a rough, rough life for many years. And, um, yeah, for, for as long as I can remember, I was the adult in the family. Yeah. Wow. And, like, like talk about, like, you. Like, I, I want to know. Like, I just want to investigate, like, you as a person. Because sometimes, and, you know, more likely than not, like, the wheels really come off the bus. But... For you, it seems like it did. Like you, you were able to manage. Not saying that like it was a preferred case scenario, but it really seems like you made the best out of all of this, and you you came out of it relatively unscathed because you've done amazing things with your life since then. You know, like what was it like growing up in school, just knowing like all this happening? So you didn't really say anything to anybody, and it was obviously just a part of your story, and you can't change your story, but you know you did, it doesn't seem like you lash out, like, unless if there's a story that you joined a gang, or there's a lot of self-harm, or, you know, you became obese, or, you know, rebellious, and you're stealing cars, like, just, 
it doesn't seem like there's that narrative, which usually that's the path that happens because of those situations. But for you, it wasn't like there's something inside you that really connects with like responsibility, you know, and especially at such a young age. Well, and you know, that probably is because I had so much responsibility. And I have to say, now that I look back, you know, I'm really grateful for all the responsibility because it did teach me how to be really tough, how to be, you know, just resilient, how to have grit. And those are things that in today's generation, you know, those kids are not taught. And I do try to work with parents, you know, to help instill some of that. But uh, you know, I'm not a wimp, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a wimp. Um, but I have to tell you, so when you say like I came out relatively unscathed, not true, not true. So it, it always seemed that way to everybody else because I, I seem like I have it together, right? I, I really seem like I do. And now I would say I do. It's taken a long time to get here. But I always knew, I'll tell you, okay. So one thing that saved me was I grew up in Maine. So I, I'm almost kind of an honorary Canadian myself. And you'll hear my accent come out every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, but I grew up in the sticks. So we didn't have a lot. And we didn't have a lot of TV or anything. So I read books. I played outside. I played with my brothers and sisters. You know, obviously I had a lot of housework. And I'll, I'll tell you more about that stuff later. Because you know what it's like, British Columbia, lugging in firewood, bringing, you know, cutting it, stacking it, you know, all those things. I was responsible for the heat in the house. So, yeah, uh, but it was, and music, music saved me too. So I started out by playing the flute because it was the only thing my mom could afford. Later on, I was able to get an inexpensive piano, taught myself. Um, so it was music, it was reading. I always wrote in my journal. I studied other languages. I love to speak French. Uh, so I kept myself really occupied intellectually. Mm. And, um, and I got all my feelings out on paper. And they were ugly a lot of times, you know. Uh, when I got to you high school. Any of those? Like, do you still have them today? No, I don't. And I'm glad they were, oh, they were, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, literally from the time I was 12 years old, every day in my journal, I wrote, I, I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to get out of here. You know? And I really couldn't wait. I graduated high school and I moved literally the next day. Yeah. <laughs> I did my time. I was like, okay, I'm gone. That's it. Um, it, it, knowing what you know now and working with such a diverse clientele, like, is, like, again, like reading that post that you post on Facebook, like you just, you've had so much experience in so many different categories. How many people, male or female, go to academics in that kind of adversity? Because they're like, I've never heard that story. Like, and I'm sure that there's other stories like that, but it's just, it's so abnormal that somebody would turn to academics to manage and be able to cope through such adversity at such a young age. Because it's it's such a harder route. Like you were going through something and had the responsibility that most adults run from even having one child, but you essentially had three, but then you're trying to go to school and then you're responsible for heat in the house and you're responsible for all these things. But then subsequently you made your life harder, harder air quotes, you know, by learning other languages, you know, learning different instruments, you know, like being very academic, just challenging yourself to like that said, like it doesn't really ever seem that there's a point in your life that you really suck out the easy route. Like it always just seemed like you wanted to go deeper and challenge yourself more while you were being so challenged. Well, okay. Yes and no, for sure. Uh, I started smoking cigarettes when I was nine. 
Okay. So there's that. Okay. Uh, and you know, for years I had begged my mom to stop and you know, I used to break her cigarettes in half and throw them in the trash. She used to get so mad at me. And then one day, and it's in my book, I, I see her like all stressed out and then she smokes a cigarette and she all of a sudden seems so calm. And I was like, I want some of that. Why? You know, I'm stressed out. And, uh, so off and on, yeah, I would steal cigarettes and smoke them. I smoked through high school, although I was kind of a closet smoker. Nobody really knew. And, uh, that was the one addiction that I, you know, I gave up in my twenties a long time ago, but you know, that was the one thing that I picked up, you know, both of my parents smoked and, uh, and step parents you know, they all smoked pretty much. And so, uh, I grew up in a cloud. It just makes perfect sense that I would develop the smoking addiction. Uh, but I was able to quit. Thank goodness. Um, but, and then high school hit and I did, I did somewhat of the party scene, not as much as many of my friends. And, uh, but I did, I did, I smoked some marijuana here and there. I drank and partied with my friends, but I was always the nerdy friend who went back to the books. Yeah. You know? Even if I wasn't doing my homework, there was a lot of times I didn't do my homework, but I was still reading other things. I was studying things that interested me. Yeah. But again, it's just, it's so, it's so abnormal. And, you know, I'm just going to keep like, I'm probing it. And it's going to be one of those conversations where I'm sure like, like anything else in this type of narrative, there's never going to be like that one magic answer. There's not going to be like that one thing. But whenever there's somebody who dramatically breaks the mold, you know, because it, it's a big thing of like what needs to happen right now with this cultural revolution that kind of needs to, the pendulum needs to swing the other way. Like you alluded to, especially like with our children where, you know, like, like people would not survive in the adversity that you had at all these, like, like the vast majority of people would just sit down. They would just sit on their hands. They would sit and they just, they wouldn't be able to handle it. You know? And then when we come across a person like you that started off in adversity has lived in adversity and has treaded those waters and has, persevered and has become like very successful through their life it's just people need to know what creates that like like whenever there's that story there's that narrative out there it's like what really makes you different and whenever people like ask me or like you know you know when I'm talking to other guests you can't really pinpoint that one that one thing but it's just like why do you think that difference is there like like, and how do we teach that to people now, you know, especially because, you know, like I have a lot of clients, you know, in like the business world, then they see this generation of, you know, kids coming up in like their twenties, they're just graduated from university. And like, once they get like in the office, they don't know what to do. And whenever they're challenged with tasks, they just don't know what to do. And, you know, seeing like kids now where it's like, even something as simple as like go outside and play, they just don't know what to do. You know, like, like, how do you help? Like, what do you say to a generation? Like, what do you say to people who've now fallen into this? Because you've never been able to really live outside of extreme responsibility. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you. So when I, when I went off to college, <clears throat> I remember I, I have a stepmom who is amazing. We're still we're very close after all these years. She's my best friend. And she used to say to me, you're 20 going on 85. <laughs> you know, I was, I was a prude. I always had my head in a book. I mean, I wasn't a prude. I was, but you know, I, I wasn't out there doing things that kids my age were doing. And, and, um, 
she pointed it out to me on several occasions that I needed to lighten up. And I, I did learn how to lighten up. But one of the things that really helped me was I, I had to really learn how to have fun. I, I knew how to put my, you know, nose to the grindstone. I knew how to study all night for a test. I knew how to read a book in two days, but I didn't really know how to have a lot of fun. And so that's been like a lifelong journey for me as learning how to have fun. And, you know, I can have fun anywhere doing anything like, and I'm always willing to learn something new. I'm always, but, uh, I think you have to, you have to find that balance. And I don't know if you ever actually find a balance, but you have to at least try, you know, um, for this generation who, uh, this generation, I would say nobody's introspective. When you're living in the woods of Maine, you, you're more likely to be introspective because there's not a lot of distractions, especially in the you know, 70s and 80s. Uh, but nowadays, you know, nobody takes two minutes to just sit and be with themselves. Mm -hmm. or dare I say even analyze hey I think this why why do I think this where does that come from yeah and you know it, it's tragic quite honestly so when I work with kids I still work with kids I work with families I work with individuals it's one of the first things I teach is how to just really look inside mm -hmm. and how to, it, it takes some courage to do that because you don't always like what you see yeah, you know, and that is the 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 very common narrative amongst the world now is like like I can't sit with myself. I'm scared of what I'm going to think. You know, my mind is overactive. Like, yeah, it's like that gateway into just like not really facing like personal growth. You know, and like it's like for me, like I spend a lot of time in the backcountry in in the mountains. So one of the things that I I continually like reiterate to people all the time is I love the feeling of being insignificant you know like when you're standing on the summit of a mountain and you're looking at it this beautiful landscape you really realize that nothing cares about you at all and it really forces you to think like well what does that mean to me like what does it really mean to me that like outside of like a very small environment like i drive for an hour i walk essentially for two three four hours and i get to this this place that's so vast that has no feeling, no emotion, no care for me or really anything. And it'll continue to exist far long after I'm here. And it brings that stirs up a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions like, you know, inside me, because you dig really deep because you have to, I found that you start to try to validate why you're here and why this environment should care, even when you know, like it's not really going to. And so when I come back and, you know, like, and I'm talking to like friends and, you know, colleagues and clients, I'm saying like, like, what would that mean to you? Like, like, what would it mean to you even to walk around this environment where there's so many people who, what if they just didn't care? Because it's a lot of like what's on social media, right? You know, like we establish these things that we, we want to care, these systems that we think care about us, but there's actually not a lot of substance behind it. We realize how superficial it, it is, you know, and it's, it's very hard for people to be able to connect with that because it's easy to be able to disconnect and find like a new group or a new person that's just willing to kind of float your boat for that day or you know you just get like a bunch of likes and clicks but it never it never forces you to change it never forces you to analyze it's a continuation of a confirmation bias like every single day when you wake up like do you see some of those problems starting to like really happen like because you would have a, a pretty good you know boots on the ground effect like eater to the streets of like what social media is doing to kids like obviously we have kind of the narrative there but based on how you grew up being like hyper responsible when you were so young versus like you know, kids and social media, like, what do you feel like is like that contrast right now? Like, how do you perceive that narrative? 
Well, you know, I'm so glad you asked. I'm actually in the process of creating an online parenting course that addresses these issues because it always starts with parents. Mm -hmm. You know, even though we're living in a different age, even though we're living in this technological era, uh, parents still can have so much influence out over how their kids develop. And I'll tell you, this will be controversial, but if I had a kid tomorrow, I would not put that child in the public school system. I would not want that child overexposed to electronics, uh, computers, all of those things. I would find a school that you know focuses more on um, creativity, uh, reading books, intellect, not technology. I think technology is something that kids need to learn piece by piece as they develop. And I'll give you a, a great example of this. I know a kiddo who's 12, I won't mention any names, and he's grown up, he has had a smartphone for a couple years now, and he's grown up with Google. So he Googles everything and he believes the first article that comes up. Oh, well, Google says this and Google says this. And it's like, well, but you're, you're not able to discern the quality of that. You don't have the maturity. And he believes Google over his parents. Yeah. So, you know, his mom might say, um, hey, you should take this vitamin. Oh, no, look, I found this article. It says vitamins don't work. Yeah. And then he won't take the vitamin. And he feels perfectly justified. So one of adults like that though too, it's not even just kids. Like, you know, like I know like adults that when you're sitting around as a group, will fact check each other while you're talking. And it's always really interesting to me. Like when adults get into that landscape where it's like, where you can't be wrong anymore. Like, and then where does that hinder conversation where you feel like on a factual basis, not only do you have to know like what the perceived facts are, but then what the anti-facts may be to be able to, counter debate the anti-facts based on the like where does that go because it is like everybody wants to be right and everybody there's an opposing view of everything like on google and it's it's everybody's first go-to you know especially now with like the voice recognition software we're just like hey google you know what's the answer to xyz you know and then it just it pops up and again it's just whoever has the best seo tools has the best answer whether or not it's the best answer or not you know, it's so funny that you mentioned the Hey Google because um, we had one of those in our house and it, it wasn't mine. It, my husband had it before I moved in and got married. And uh, one day I just got so sick of that thing. I ripped it right out of the wall and I took it and I chucked it. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I'm not going to argue with whatever her name was. What is her? Alexa. Alexa. Hey, Alexa. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's shift to get gears a little bit like this. I, I want to know like, a little bit more about like the nutrition side. Again, like this is something that, that I live my life in this landscape all the time and I feel questions daily about this, you know, because I think we have such a disconnection with food. We don't really realize the power of food, the purpose of food. And we've kind of changed what food is supposed to mean and represent. Like it was, it was this source for energy, this source for fuel, this thing that we needed just to be able to keep on going. But now it's turned into this hyper pleasure response, this visual response, this touch, this feel like, like this addiction, but we don't even treat it as the same tool anymore. Um, like what is your perception on how people see and treat food, especially in North America right now? Well, wow. It's, it's so, it's this such an in-depth conversation. I think we have to, you know, step back and take a look at, our families and how our families taught us to see food, right? Whether, um, you know, there's so many different ethnicities in North America 
and uh, you know so many different approaches to food and uh, you know forget the fact that on top of that then you turn on the television you've got this culture of the commercials with the fast food and you know billboards and everywhere you go there's a fast food place on the corner it's just this widely accepted uh, abomination on our society that you know we don't have to be concerned about the quality of our food right and there's this real disconnect in the brain between what I ingest in my body and what my output's going to be, right? Short term and long term. So, you know, when somebody's eating a, a cheeseburger or a French fry, you know, whatever it is they're eating, they're not equating it to, hey, I could get heart disease and have a heart attack, or I could get a fatty liver, or I could, you know, become overweight, whatever the case. There's this huge disconnect. And our society really promotes that. And again, it's just that, you know, not turning inward, right? People eat for pleasure, people eat for pain, people eat for boredom, for comfort, uh, to replace a romantic relationship, for stress. I mean, all kinds of, for addiction, all kinds of reasons. But all of those are looking outward and none of them are looking in, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens when we look in? I think that's where, I, like I said, it takes a courageous person to do it. It's so much easier to reach for a cookie or to reach for, you know, and our society completely supports it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and what you made like a really good point where you, like when people don't want to look in and this is my, my foundation for looking in at how many people in like, I was like this until very recently actually too, that you don't even really know what it's like to be satiated. Like that actual true real sense of like satiation because although you may have like ate this food because that food is so nutrient void, you're still craving things and you feel like you should be full and you walk past and it's like, well, now I want this and I want a little bit of that and I just want to keep consuming and consuming and consuming. But because we don't realize what like being satisfied and satiated from a nutrient perspective because we just don't have a lot of that good quality anymore. I don't know how to be able to loop people around that. And it's always something that I get very lost about because it takes a lot of effort and a lot of personal responsibility and a lot of willingness to want to seek out the environments to actually educate yourself about food and how like, yes, you can have a tomato, but like this tomato versus this tomato can make all the difference in the world. Even like our, it's so hard for us to be able to wrap our minds around like, well, it's a tomato, it should be healthy, it's a vegetable. We've always been told vegetables are healthy, but now having to like delineate these two things, it's just so much work. Like when you deal with people, when you're, when you're talking with people, like what are some of the things that you suggest to them to be able to get over the abundance amount of work? Because like nutrition and healthy eating and like healthy concepts around food is probably one of the hardest things for people to do because it is a daily job. Yeah, it is a daily job. It is. And you have to love yourself to do it, right? It's like, you know, I don't know if you ever read 12, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good, good. I think it's rule number two or three. He says, treat yourself as if you're responsible for somebody, you know, you care about, right? Mm -hmm. And 
So we'll treat our pets, he says, we'll treat our dogs better than we treat ourselves. And it's true. So you have to really love yourself, not in a self-centered way, but in a true altruistic way. Like you were saying, you stand on the mountain and you feel you know, insignificant. What I would also say to that is, yes, you're insignificant, but you're also part of it all, right? You're part of nature, your nature. And so you have that respect and that reverence for the mountain and for the stream and all those things. And we have to have that same respect and reverence for ourselves. And that's tough. That's tough. And I'll say this too. I think, I think it's a spiritual thing. I think you can say religion, you can say spirituality, whatever it is. But for me, the people that I work with that don't have some sort of a spiritual or religious connection can't feel that. They can't feel that sense of importance. Like you really are important. You're part of this world and part of all there is. You've got to take care of yourself, right? And so that is the, that's one of the toughest things to convey when somebody doesn't have a faith or doesn't have a spiritual practice, that they don't feel connected. And when you don't feel connected in this universe, it can be very lonely, it can be very cold, and food can become a great comfort. Mm -hmm. Why do you think our society is kind of gravitated or is gravitating towards giving us the tools to devalue ourselves? Because it kind of seems like that's the like a disassociation with ourself, a disassociation with who we are and understanding like like the core sense of being. It seems like we get more tools to help us fundamentally lose ourselves than to fundamentally gain the knowledge of who we are. You know, and like really the only outward tools that like, you know, we see as probably mass pumped right now is meditation apps. But then people get so scared the first time they meditate because they realize there's some things going on in the mind that they need to think about. Then they stop doing it. But like really outside of that, there's not really any mainstream tools that teach us that intense sense of connection, you know, versus all the things that just continually disconnect us from ourselves and from one another. Right, right. Okay, that's a, that's a loaded question. So I do have an answer for you. So number one, I do want to say this though. When, when a lot of people meditate, um, when somebody says, oh, I don't know how to meditate, I say, okay, then let's talk about it. Because uh, in my opinion, there is a right way and a wrong way to do it. A lot of people and a lot of my friends in the past, my friends in the spiritual community, they meditate and they like literally leave their body, right? They're not present. And in my opinion, when you meditate, you have to feel rooted. So I always ask people to imagine you're like a heavy stone, you're really rooted inside your body. It's, you know, don't go off into some other interdimensional, you know, uh, people listen to, oh gosh, what is his name? Uh, Joe Dispenza, right? Yeah. And I've listened to some Joe Dispenza and I'm like, oh no, this is too intergalactic for me. I got to get in here, right? Yeah. Don't go for the exotic till you've mastered the basic. Get uh, I read that about you, one of your favorite quotes that you've learned. My yeah. favorite quote from Jim Rohn, the yeah. uh, deceased Jim Rohn, I love him. So, you know, get inside there. When you get inside your body, it's like, okay, let me give you this analogy. It's like buying an old junker car and getting it to run. Mm. You know, it's been parked for 20 years. Wild animals are living in it. It's full of trash. It's rusted out. And you got to get in there and you got to make that car functional. That's what getting inside the body is like. Most people do not live inside themselves. They just don't. 
right? And so it's hard work. It's hard. It's the wax on, wax off from the movie, right? And that's the thing. So when you ask me, like, what did I get out of my childhood the most, besides a lot of, you know, things I had to discuss in therapy, hard work is where it's at. Hard work where it's at. Now I do, you know, different types of hard work, but you know, getting inside your body is the hardest thing you'll ever do. And you asked something else. You asked, um, why aren't we given tools for this? Well, in my opinion, uh, it does kind of, I'm going to be a little political for a moment and it may not be popular, but you know, we'll risk it. So, you know, you've got these different schools of thought and these different philosophies. You've got the, we're all one philosophy which I don't buy into, okay? And I'll tell you why in a second. And then you've got the, I'm a rugged individual, right? And you've got all kinds of shades of gray in between. But I think you can't be part of the one until you've really figured out you. And you know, life is so full of paradox and religion and spirituality is also very full of paradox, right? Jesus spoke in paradox, the Buddha spoke in paradox. So, you know, yes, ultimately we're all one, but I'm responsible for this being right here. And until I take ultimate and total responsibility, if I'm going to try to be part of the one, it's like, I'm going to infect the one. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think, you know, people in power organizations, just the way things are, you know, we don't want people really finding that individual power because it's dangerous for, you know, managing a population, a society. And the people at the top are always looking at how to manage, right? If you owned a herd of cattle, you would be wondering how to best manage that, right? How to get the most out of them, how to manage them. What would happen if all of a sudden there was a stampede and they came charging towards you? Hmm. Or they kept they were saying, this isn't right. That's not right. Uh, so, you know, it's so much easier and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist. I'm not, I have been reading and researching this stuff for 40 years. You know, we, we have to take that risk though and say, no matter what people are doing out here, I'm going to do this over here. If everyone else is doing this, it's probably a good indication that you shouldn't be doing that. Right. Yeah. Why is everybody else doing it? It's easy. It's fun. It's, it's, you know, nonsense. I'm going to go over here and do the hard thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would love more people to do. Say, okay, I'm not going to plug into this mindset. I'm not going to plug into this mindset. I'm going to really look inside. And when you do that, a lot of neuroses clear up. A lot of pain and trauma comes out to be healed or to be integrated. Uh, You know, you really next level yourself. So that was the one, and I'm a big believer in God. I'm a Christian, just to say that, uh, you know, I, I'm open when people talk about other faiths. I'm certainly open to listen, but I'm a Christian myself. And I do po- believe that God makes warriors by putting us through war. Mm-hmm. I would not be the person I am today. I would not have the grit that I have today if I didn't go through everything I'd gone through. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. So even, you know, if a person, you know, had a relatively easy life, like the Buddha had an easy life, right? He had to go create, con- you know, conflict for himself so he could learn and grow. He, you know, he he grew grown up rich. So for somebody like that, who's just grown up and again, these kids today, they're so overindulged, you know, 
just, you can still just take a moment. You don't need tragedy and trauma to grow. They're helpful sometimes. It's almost like growing, kicking and screaming, but you can still start wherever you are and say, okay, what do I want to leave this planet with, right? What do I want my legacy to be? Start there. Yeah. You know, and like, there's just, uh, there's like 10,000 things that just like went through my mind, like after you, when you were talking there, but it's like, like a really big part of that is, is, is for one, I guess, like a, a, a thought that I want to throw out there and you can chime in is why and how to get to be the part where we're so scared of ourselves as individuals. Like, and, and I, I say that in context is I had a conversation with somebody a few weeks ago that I think a foundation of this is actually the American dream, you know, where it's the, you know, you have like this house, you, know, you have these 2.5 kids, you have this dog, you have two cars, you have this white picket fence. And it was a singular vision. So everybody was striving for this like one singular vision and there was no deviation outside of that. It's so, like, if your vision looked a little bit different than that, it became abnormal. When it becomes abnormal, we're kind of scared to like tread in those pools because it's not what everybody else is doing. It's not the mainstream image or, you know, like when it's just a little bit of a different mold. So like when we create this singular vision, we create this singular path. And like, like you said, it's like easier to get everybody to travel down that path because everything outside of that is scary. Like you shouldn't be there. But we also like have like this, innate presence inside of us that says i need to challenge what that means but we don't really facilitate that and foster i think it's coming a little bit more now like people want to like express who they are people want to be able to challenge and say like my dream looks different than your dream and they're both okay you know but like really we're stuck at this apex where there's a lot of people and i see it in you know like my parents and you know like you know if you're in kind of like the 30s to 40s category like all of our parents were like if you're not toting that singular dream where you get that one job and you have like that one house and that's how you live your life that like things are awry. Like, you know, what are you doing with your life? You know, like you didn't have like, you're not getting your 25 year watch and you're not getting like, you know, this pension that you've been working 25 or 30 years for like everything's so scary outside of that, that we've kind of molded these generations that have come after that into like this fear-based system. So like it just kind of like exacerbates generation after generation. Now you have like, you know, these kids that don't know how to be able to self-reflect, haven't really gone through any adversity, but now they're having kids, you know? So like the one thing, like in an athletic arena, what I say to people, I'm like, how do you teach your child the value of exercise if you've never exercised? If you've only really just been lethargic, sitting at home, playing video games, playing on social media, being on the internet, and that like anything physical was just a chore. It was monotonous. Like you just didn't want to do it. Where does physical activity then get lumped into this like fear-based world too? Like it's just so scary. My body hurts. My body aches. I don't want to do it. It's so much easier just to sit at home, easier to pop these pills to be able to feel better and all that kind of stuff. Like why or like how did we get to this point where like we're so scared of ourselves that taking a step outside of the norm is just, it, it's paralyzing for most people. Because mm -hmm. I know it's a big part of like what I've read about some of the, like, the stuff that you've put online is that not, not necessarily toting like the same vision, creating your own vision, like realizing what your life can be, you know, your life might look very different than that. But people have a very hard time walking down that road. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes they do. And I think sometimes too, 
you know, we're not really taught how to create a vision. A lot of times we'll take on the vision of someone else, right? That they want us to do this or they want us to do that. How do you really explore what you love? I don't think we're taught that very often in this society. It's like, I work with a lot of college age kids and some high school kids too. And they'll say, well, I want to do this, but my mom wants me to get this business degree or my mom wants me to get this. And granted, there's some, you know, there's some logic to that because if somebody's going to go and get a political science degree, what are you going to do with that? You know, you're going to spend a hundred thousand dollars. What are you going to do with that? So mm -hmm. let's have a clear cut plan. Me with a psych degree, I knew I had to go get a master's. I knew I would do nothing with my psych degree that brought me much joy, right? And I did. I got a couple of jobs out of school, and I was like, oh, yeah, nope. Next year, <laughs> I'll be right back in school going, I got I to gotta get this advanced degree. People don't do much with a psych degree. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm not saying nobody ever does, but by and large, yeah. right? So, you know, really helping people create a vision for themselves again takes that looking inward. The other thing that I didn't grow up with so much in my generation is all this bullying on social media, right? Uh, even adults, I was bullied twice yesterday on social media and I just giggle at it because I'm like, do these people really think? I mean, I was told, keep your opinions to yourself. Um, you're a terrible person. I've been called names, I've been called horrible names. I posted something on Instagram yesterday and somebody said, and it, it, it was a, it was political satire. It was what it was. And somebody said, well, wait, I thought you were an independent. It was one of my readers who, and I was like, you know what, just because you liked my book doesn't mean you're going to like every single thing I say. And that's okay. Yeah. Doesn't, you know, and, and I've gotten fan mail. It says, I hope you're not a Trump supporter. I'll never buy any of your books, things like that. And I just giggle and I just say, are you kidding? But, but for younger generations, that really hurts them and it really impacts them. And yeah. so, you know, we have to take that into consideration. Sad. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And, you know, like, like you said, like baseless bullying, because, you know, like when I was growing up, if, you know, if there was a bully, like you had like one or two options, you could either sink or swim in that environment. But there was a lot less bullying, you know, but that typically meant like the bully was a little bit stronger and a little bit more powerful. But there was always a point in time you know, where life kind of corrected that course and stuff, but it's not like that now. And especially like the one thing that I've seen that actually I can't stand the most, especially since I have three kids is that when you see adults bullying children online, like I just, like, I can't even, like it, the concept of that to me is like just dumbfounding, like how you have these people who can call themselves adults, but be little children online. And especially when they know that they're children, it's a very oh, tough environment. Yeah. And that's, that's another part of the problem. It goes back to parents, you know, should your kids really be online? Should mm -hmm. they be online? It's kind of a dangerous place. Yeah. Uh, I, my, I have a, an amazing stepson. I call him my bonus son and I saw on his phone, he had downloaded TikTok. And I said to his dad, I said, did you approve this? He said, no, we deleted that right away. He was like, he's not having that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing good that's going to come out of that. <laughs> no, he's not having it. But then you become those parents and you have to live in the stigma that like you're not letting your kids, you know, like blah, 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 blah. And like that narrative. And, and it's funny because then you have like other parents bullying parents. And even though we know and I know all the parents who like are letting kids download all those apps and have all that free access online. I know they know, but they just feel obligated to, you know, allow that freedom like online, even though like I know that they don't fully maybe connect with it. 
but then they have to bully the other people, you know, like you guys, you know, like me, where I like, I don't let, I, I, I wouldn't do that because again, like, there's, there's so much more wrong that can happen. I'd rather just grab some pencil crayons and color with my kids or, you know, like, like play some card games or like that kind of stuff, because it's like, like the wheels can only come so far off the bus. Like, I feel like no matter who I am as a parent, obviously within limitations, I can only do such a bad job as a singular person. But, you know, like online, you're exposed to thousands and millions and hundreds of millions of people who all have a, like a little bit of an influence, like how your children or how our children grow up. And like, that's the part that I think a lot of people forget, you know, like right when it comes down to like, you know, music, you know, like that our kids listen to and stuff where like, I know when I was growing up, it was always radio versions because the only time you really ever heard music was on the radio. But now it's like the full, like, you know, unedited versions of songs, you know, like that kids hear, like, you know, as young, four or five, six, where I've been like saying the words, not realizing really what they mean. But then hearing some of these kids sing along with it, it just boggles my mind. Really tough time with things like that. But, you know, and as parents, you're, you are the biggest influencer. You should be the biggest influence. So yes, if your kid is listening to music, you should be listening to and saying, okay, yeah, this is okay. Or no, 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 this is not acceptable. I don't like 12 year old boys running around singing Eminem songs. I think it's highly inappropriate. A lot of those songs are angry. Uh, the topics are not great. I don't think it's cute. I don't think it's funny. And, you know, so I might say, well, um, okay, you're listening to this, but have you ever heard of blah, blah, blah? Yeah. Uh, you heard of Pink Floyd? No. What? You're 12 and you've never heard of Pink Floyd? Come on now. Are you kidding? Oh, and you're doing you know, <laughs> so let's listen to some good music. So it's parents' jobs to, you know, introduce the good music. And maybe some people don't like Pink Floyd. I grew up listening. So, you know, dinner time conversation. Talk about important things. Talk about current events. Uh, talk about, you know, my bonus son, he used to wake up in the mornings and turn on like the dumbest cartoons. And, you know, as a stepmom coming in, you don't want to be the wicked stepmom. So there's a lot of things that I just let go. But I thought to myself, like, oh, I really wish he wasn't watching those. Well, I started, I'm not a big TV watcher, but I started watching some news programs, some history channel stuff. And then before you know it, he was getting up and turning on those things. Yeah, And I would say, hey, buddy, look, there's a documentary on the Hindenburg. Do you want to watch it with me? What's the Hindenburg? I'm going to tell you or we're going to watch it. It's a really cool thing, you know. And so getting him, you know, if he's going to watch TV, okay, let's watch something educational. Let's watch something that, you know, that you can then have an intelligent conversation about, right? Well, it's all those little fun facts. Like, I love that with my kids, too, where it's like, then they have all those little fun facts to be able to, like, talk about where then, like you said, the, what you're doing is you're setting that foundation where people can go in and have a conversation. Because even like this, like, you know, like I get a lot of people, I'm sure you get a lot of people too, that just like, how do you have like those one-on-one -on -one conversations? Because these conversations intimidate people, even with people they know, but you know, like people, this, this is the first time we've ever talked. But like, I always want to have that, that layer of comfort because that conversation is that, that art that you fine tune all the time. But you know, having like those little things like that bank where you have interesting things to be able to say to people like and like those are like the the foundations and like I really feel like that with um, you know like the current social media you know usage with kids like it doesn't give them anything really to talk about when they're adults like there's no there's nothing that's going to carry forward you know from that experience it's like well what are you gonna what's the conversation going to be like how many people you disliked or unfriended or you know like what all this like social media feed was you know, versus actually having substance to be able to leverage later on in life in 10, 20, 30 years from now. Yes. Um, 
I do want to talk about something real quick. I don't mean to cut that that off, but one the one thing that really really intrigues me like about you is your I believe you have a passion for how food can heal. Like you've done a lot of great work with healing people from multiple different like autoimmune issues, um, you know, and, and full spectrum across the board. Like explain, tell me, like what are some of the things that you've seen? Like how do you accomplish it? Like go so far down the rabbit hole with it because a lot of people I feel like don't understand the value of food, the impact of food, and a lot of the things that we see, like we said heart disease, fatty liver disease, diabetes, you know, um, ADHD, autoimmune issues, you know, psoriasis, like all these things come down to like what we choose to be able to eat. Like every day they're having that kind of impact, but we just, I feel like as a society, we just don't want to believe that. Like we just don't want to believe that our food is actually causing a lot of the illnesses that are in our body and actually have that big of a driving force in our day. So uh, rabbit hole, I want to know it all gosh okay well let's see um first of all like you were saying earlier one tomato can be so different from another tomato right so the quality and i'm not sure about canada but the quality of our food here in the united states just drastically declining especially with the introduction of the gmos right so do you have gmo foods in canada yeah we do yeah okay because i know several countries in europe have banned them which is so smart Russia doesn't allow GMO crops, uh, you know, but here we are, you know, we're eating this stuff. So when I have to have a conversation with my husband, I'm like, we can't buy that corn because it's GMO, you know, I mean, that's going far down the rabbit hole for most people, quite honestly. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I experienced it myself personally. Uh, I grew up eating junk food. My mom didn't cook. She cooked maybe once or twice a week. She put junk food in our lunch every day. I mean, it was junk food. I could drink soda growing up whenever I wanted. Uh, I could have Doritos for breakfast. <laughs> so I think, I mean, I'd cleaned it up quite a bit, but by the time I was 27 or 28, I was really sick. I was not well. I was on five medications. Wow. And I what had- What medications were you on and, and why? Yeah, um, so my body was just shutting down. So I was on thyroid medication asthma medication, acne medication, acid reflux medication, and then I had to take birth control pills because my menstrual cycle was just awful. Yeah. So I, one of my friends, just by chance, right, and nothing's by chance, but uh, by chance she said, I think you should go to my chiropractor because I was having these really bad neck pains, which I later found out were migraines. I did not know at the time. And she said, you know, I'm a nutritionist. I want you to keep a journal of everything you eat for a week and come back. And so she took a look at it. She was like, oh boy, we've got some work to do. She said, but the good news is I can get you up all your medications in six months. She said, give me six months. And I was like, okay. She said, you have to do everything I say, literally everything I say. And I trusted her. She was just this neat lady. She was an East Coast Jewish woman, older woman, never been married, just dedicated to her career. She was amazing. She was so smart. And she was tough as nails. So I needed that because I'm that tough person. So I needed that person to be tough with me. You can eat this. You cannot eat this. No questions. So I did everything she said for six months. And she was a chiropractor too. So she helped, you know, realign me. She, um, she gave me so many supplements. I took the craziest things. Um, Chinese herbs, uh, things that you'd stick in strange places. Like it, it, I did not. <laughs> 
I won't go too far there. Yeah. So, uh, but I did everything she wanted me to do. And it was a lot. And three times a day, I had to drink these liquids. But she completely cured me. Oh, and, and the diet, I couldn't eat any raw foods. They could only be cooked. I couldn't have gluten, dairy, soy, alcohol, caffeine, sugar, nothing for six straight months. And I did it. I'm that person that will, once I dial in, like, I'll do it. And she completely healed me. And I was off of every medication. I'd never felt so good in my whole life. And right away, uh, this was in 2003. 2005 is when I graduated with my master's. And that same year, within a few months, I started studying nutrition. Because I was like, I have to. I can't let my clients not get to that next level of health. Because, you know, mental and physical, as you know, emotional, they're all tied together. Yeah. So if somebody's anxious, if they're depressed, now the first thing I look at is their nutrition. Obviously, I look at their circumstance. Now, when somebody comes in and says, I want to lose weight, I also make them write a psychosocial bio for me. I want to know everything that's happened in your past. I want to know why you're overweight, what emotional reasons, and we're going to address those too. And that's how I get the most success with people. And I, what's your relationship to chocolate? Well, I really crave this. Why? Let's figure it out. Did your grandma make that when you were five? Okay, let's go there. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think like the the part that makes the most sense to me, and like this is obviously like a, a debate, you know, probably that you've heard, you know, lots too, is that like our front line of people who are responsible for helping people, no matter, you know, from like a psychology or a chiropractic or you know, physical fitness or just overall general health, there's no, there's no like double degree. There's no like an education in nutrition. There's no people saying, but like you had a chiropractor who's a chiropractor who's a nutritionist. They decided to, or she decided to go down that road on her own because she understood the value. Then she educates you, you know, you go for your psych degree and you understand the value of nutrition. So you go there. But like, I just feel like there's this, there's this responsibility that all of us should have is like these frontline people that we need to know and like keep pushing that message like nutrition is that important like you know it really is like a huge driving factor like in our days and in our lives from so many different categories because you know like even like where you said like somebody comes in with anxiety well you know it can be situational like obviously 100% but how much of that situation could be micromanaged by the individual if they didn't have these underlying poor nutritional habits you know, where like they might not even really understand that they're feeling anxiety or it's very easily managed without any kind of intervention because it's just a kind of a part of everyday life. You know, where like that's like the big part that that I see. Um, what are some of the things that you do with people to kind of help enlighten them about the value of nutrition and get them to really just respect like because we've all been indoctrinated that big pharma is like the first line of defense. And obviously we need to break that. Like that's the first concept that needs to go. And it's such a toxic, polluted subject to be able to still be promoting. But a lot of people are, how do we break people out of wanting to trust and rely on big pharma versus like, I could just grow a garden potentially and have the same results. Like what do you say to people between this battle between big pharma, big agriculture, and just, real small scale, local personal responsibility, you know, have like some stuff at home, shop local, buy local, go to a farmer's market. What are some of the things that you, how you educate people to bring the value back to like good quality food and how that can kind of cure a lot of these ailments that we have in uh, everyday life? 
Well, I have to say, okay, a couple of things. Number one, when people meet me, because I'm almost 50 years old and I don't look it and I don't act it by any means. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to be 48 in a few months. So, I mean, I'm 40 years old and, you know, I'm I'm healthy. I don't have any diseases. I am not aging as fast as everybody else. I don't use caffeine. uh, And that is a huge one. Caffeine and ages the face, ages the skin in general. So uh, my clients do not use caffeine. So I get them off of that real quick. But um, I think when they meet me and they see where I came from to where I am today, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to be playing tennis when I'm 85 still. I just am. I know it. So uh, I think, and you know, I think they feel my energy and they're like, I want some of that. I want that. And so, okay, then we need to look at number one. We need to look at your emotional attachments to food and we need to break them. So I have clients write breakup letters to foods all the time or beverages, right? Uh, Dear Dr. Pepper, I love you, but you don't love me back. It's a one-sided relationship. It needs to end, you know, whatever. This is how you, you know, you've been my friend. You've been there for me, but here's what you're doing. You're causing my diabetes. You're causing my weight gain. You're causing my gout, you know, whatever it is. I need to let you go. And I know it sounds trite, but it really works. It's powerful. I make them do it. Um, I make, I also have my clients really take a look at their budget because I hear all the time, I got a text the other day, organic chicken's $10. Yes, and, mm-hmm. and how much is, how much are your hair extensions? How much is your pedicure? How much is your manicure? What do you pay for your cable bill every month? What do you pay? What do you just pay for that new phone? Yeah. Right. I want to hear it. So, you know, let's really take a look at what's important. Let's prioritize. What, how much is that medication going to be when you're 65? that, you know, Medicare isn't really going to cover if it's even still around. I know you guys have something maybe a little bit different, but you know, we need to prioritize. Mm -hmm. My husband, we got married, uh, you know, he was shocked at the grocery bill. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's from Nebraska. He's Midwest. Like he was never going to pay 10 bucks for the organic chicken. He will now. And he sees the value in it. Took a while, but you know, luckily he was supportive, but I'm like, yeah, our grocery bill's 250 bucks this week. Yeah, and we can afford it. Yeah. We can afford it. I don't get manicures. I don't get pedicures. You know, I, I don't I do not do those things. So guess what? I'm spending- But like money. that though, I'm going to stop like that. It's the value. It's the, the value that you put on because again, you have to, you have to step in into a zone of like choosing what you decide to value more than something else. But like as a woman to say- you know, like, I'm going to choose it over the pedicures. I'm going to choose it over the manicures. I'm going to choose it over, over those things. Like, you know, just because I, I operate a lot of my day dealing, like, with women, those are things really hard, like, to be able to convince women. Like, I will never be able to do that as a guy. I completely understand that. But, like, I can imagine for you as, like, a woman saying, I've chose to give these things up. They don't detract from the value of me. I don't think there's very many people at all that would guess that you're 48 years old, you know, and like that is, is a selling feature on its own that like what a healthy lifestyle, you know, and good nutrition can do for you, you know, but like, how do you, how do you do that? Like, what's your, what's your, not your secret, but like, what's your education that you give to people saying like, just changing those value systems of like, yeah, instead of paying the, you know, 10, 20, $30 for the manicure and the pedicure, and instead of like having all these extra um, additives, choosing to be able to spend that, that is going to get you that health, going to get you like, you know, like that, that vitality, that energy that people are always striving for. 
Yeah. Well, number one, they have to be ready. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know how much time we have, but I want to just go down that path just a little bit because as a woman, I feel very strongly about this. Society really pressures women to buy shit. Excuse my language. Whether it's beauty stuff. I mean, whether it's, you know, hair stuff, whether it's the Michael Kors handbag, the, whatever it is, you know, the expensive stuff, it's, there's so much pressure. And I think women use shopping a lot of times as a stress reliever, right? As kind of filling the hole as just like some people might overeat, some people over shop. And I got off that train a while ago. And I'll tell you, I'm just so happy about it. Like, I don't need that expensive handbag. It doesn't, what is that telling people? As a matter of fact, I wouldn't, I have a rule that I don't wear or carry anything that has a label Mm -hmm. because it doesn't mean anything. What that means is someone's getting seriously overpaid for this piece of crap handbag that was made by slaves in Taiwan or China, right? People who are working for slave wages. Uh, Why do I want to support that? Why does that tell the world that I'm, I have, what am, is it a status symbol? It means nothing. I feel so strongly about that. Take that $300 or $500 or some people spend $2,000 on a Prada bag on a, what's that? Chanel bag. By the way, people don't know Coco Chanel was a war. She traded war secrets during World War II. Winston Churchill had to pardon her. She was a criminal. Why would I want to carry a $4,000 Chanel bag? How about I take that $4,000 and invest it in myself, Mm -hmm. right? In my food. You know, and manicures are expensive. Um, But, you know, most people aren't walking around with Chanel bags. That might be the Hollywood or the elite. But a lot of women are walking around with several hundred dollar handbags, you know, Michael Kors bags or Louis Vuitton, whatever. So stop that. Like, stop with the label stuff. It's, It's a way to keep us broke and sick and, you know, striving to be better than. Better than what? Better than the neighbor? Better than another woman who's right next to me? So, you know, it's ridiculous. Take that money invested in you, whether it's a degree program, whether it's healthy food, whether it's, you know, learning a skill. I, you know, I was living in Houston before I got married and moved here and I spent $400 a month on my dance lesson because that was valuable to me. It was like 80 bucks a pop every week. And every Friday, I looked forward to that private dance lesson. It was exercise. I was learning a skill. So I'll spend $400 there. I'm not spending it at the nail salon to get a bunch of chemicals in my body that I'm going to have to detox later. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It it does to me because I get that. You know, like we're like one of the things that I love about going in the backcountry, and this is like my version of fun because like I always tell people like, I can be gone for all day or I can be gone for like two days, three days. And it really is maybe like 10 or $20 worth of gas. I just have to get there. I already have all the gear. I've had it for years. I don't have to buy anything new. Like the cost per item now is like next to nothing, but I can continually have experiences leveraged on an extremely low dollar amount because like a lot of people ask me like, you know, like I, I really authentically want to work a little bit less to be able to enjoy my life. I, I want to be able to stack the cards in my favor. So I'm not just enjoying my life now, but I'm enjoying it. Like, yes, when I am like 80, when I'm 90 or like, I want to live good and then just die one day. You know, like, I don't, I don't want to live like decades of like, just feeling like garbage or like on these medications or, you know, just going to doctor's visits all the time. Like, 
-hmm. Like I want to just really just be like in that moment. So I get what you mean. But like you said, you have to really want to be in that space because people are like, they wake up every day inundated with not being that with everything, but that and it's really hard. Then you have a voice that comes around and says, it's okay to not be like that. But then you're faced with 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 voices every day, you know, on TV, social media, social networks, professional networks. I'm just like, everybody's got the bag. You know, everybody's got the nails done. Like everybody's got the car. Everybody's got that house. Everybody has like all these things. And it's hard to take a step back and saying, I really don't need any of that. And I'm comfortable enough because I've done enough self-reflection to know who I am that I can operate in this medium without those things and actually still be happy. Yes. And, you know, and I'm not saying a woman should have none of those things. I mean, clearly, you know, I get my hair done, right? I put makeup on every day. But I do I spend a little extra for mostly organic makeup? Yeah, I try. Uh, organic skincare, I make my own, you know, those kinds of things. You know, if you want to get your nails done, fine. But if it's, if it comes down to, I can't afford this organic food because I'm getting my nails done. I mean, that's a priorities issue, right? Yeah. So, you know, we really have to figure out what those priorities are. For me, I just said a long time ago, it's the food, no matter what, just mm -hmm. no matter what. And it doesn't mean that I don't ever go off on my meal plan. Of course I do. Uh, especially now being married, my, my husband, I've had to work really hard. He's taken on so many of my healthy habits, but I've taken on a couple of his unhealthy habits. <laughs> yeah. The give like, and take of relationships. <laughs> What's that? The give and take of relationships. Yes. You know, he's lost 30 pounds. I've gained five. So. <laughs> what are some of the unhealthy things? Like what are some of the, the, it's like, ah, oh, shoot, I can't believe I walked down this road. Well, he makes the best wings, like the best wings. So now we figured out how to make wings, but it's white chicken meat for me. Like I can't oh, yeah. eat wings, right? I just can't eat them. Peanut M&Ms. I oh, haven't candy. God, the yellow bag. Yes. I just have to stay away. Like they should be banned from my presence. Like uh, at least a month, a year, I binge eat those things like they're air and I hate myself every day for yes. it. And I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Peanut M&Ms are like the worst thing that's like ever, like ever been invented for me. It's the only thing that I'll ever eat like that. Like I rarely ever eat chips. I never have chocolate bars or candy, like any of that stuff. But there's usually like a, a time a year where like those yellow bag M&Ms are just like, oh, they're like the devil to me. They just ruin me for, yeah. So I know. Yeah. What you yeah. And so he'll go through phases where he brings it in the house and then, you know, I'll know he has it or I'll be like, you smell like peanut M&Ms. Do you have any more? You know, kind of, but for me, if I didn't buy them, like I would never think about them. So, so I have to continuously break up with foods too, just like everybody else. But I, I do have a lot of resolve of like, okay, not going to do that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I'm not a purist a hundred percent, right? I have to, you know, I live life, but, um, I just, I try to make those good choices as much as possible just because, you know, in turning 48, you know, you see your metabolism start to slow down, even though I can, you know, I take a lot of supplements. It's just, it's life. And so I have to work even harder now than I did five or six years ago to maintain. And uh, yeah, you know, so you have to be diligent. What, what's your like exercise and nutrition program? Like, do you follow like, you know, 
whole food, plant-based, paleo, keto, carnivore, like, and like, what do you do for exercise? Just like, feel me, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, sure. So um, I do take a nice long hour, like three mile walk every day, three to four miles. Um, sometimes I'll jog it in the summer. I, it's kind of warm. I don't know. I like to run in the heat, but I'll do, I walk. I do a lot of calisthenic type of crunches and uh, those kinds of things. Um, I have a couple workout videos I love. The old, old 80s buns of steel. Oh, I that's see- awesome. Yes, I love it. It works really well. I have a couple of dance videos. Um, we just started playing tennis again, so I like to play tennis. I like to do those kinds of things. We have a treadmill. We have a weight bench. So a little bit of everything. I'm not a big yoga person. I love dancing. That's my thing. Like I love dancing. So, yeah. um, As far as foods, so I so – when I work with somebody, I really tailor it to them. So I do look at blood type. I do look at body and metabolic type. I look at their labs and go, okay, what needs to happen here? What are you eating too much of? What are you not getting enough of? I do measure out um, protein grams for people, for people like, okay, this is how many protein grams I want you to have per day. I think most people don't get enough of the right proteins. Um, I would say my style is more of a modified paleo. So for some people, I have them go grain free. If they have a lot of inflammation for other people, I do have them go gluten dairy free. uh, If they're having health issues, Uh, I do have people get food sensitivity tests because I think they're just so invaluable. Yeah. Uh, I had one come back the other day. A person was highly sensitive to egg whites and they were eating them all all the time. So we had to get them away. So normally when a person will do a food sensitivity test, I'll see them drop sometimes 10 pounds in the first week just because of they were so inflamed mm-hmm. it's not that they're eating less necessarily so uh so i really like to tailor it to the individual yeah yeah but like you're like you personally said like a, a modified paleo like what is what is a modified paleo diet look like for you so if i'm being perfect uh, sometimes I will do like a half a serving of gluten-free oats. I don't do the full serving. It's too many carbs for me personally. I'm only five, two. So I'll do half. I'll throw some egg whites in there. I'll throw like some organic raspberries in there, some chia seeds or something. Uh, I do a protein shake every day. There's one I really, really like that's full of uh, good stuff. Um, I try to stay to the low sugar fruits, the berries, kiwi, star fruits, grapefruit, um, with cherry season happening, I ate a ton of cherries. That was very happy. Uh, I love those. Um, lunch is usually veggies and protein with a carb. So maybe a sweet potato or some quinoa. Um, if I'm not in a weight loss mode, I will do a carb at dinner too. Sometimes if I'm in a weight loss mode, I won't do a carb with dinner. I'll do a protein, a veggie and a fat or two veggies and a fat, uh, a lean protein, um i do what's your, what's your comfortable weight that you like you like to say like when you feel your best like like mine's like 168 to 170 like when i feel like my athletic performance is like the best i just feel good i feel light my my mind feels good my body feels good like what's your kind of like like preferred operating weight well and you know i almost hate to say it because i don't want people to go like oh my gosh that's crazy but i'm five two and i have a really small bone frame so 103 pounds, 105 pounds is really where I should be most of the time. What people should take away from that is that you, you know the range. 
you know, and it's very specific. So like, like when I hear people say things like that, it's like, I know you've investigated that. It's not just like this number that's abstract, that's like small or represents you being like small or tiny or like what you deem to be fit. Like there's actual, like it, you can tell that you've collected like data on like how you feel because it's between like 103 and like 105. You know, and for somebody who's five two with a small bone structure, like I said, like that's also then like applicable in how you just listed what you eat. There's really nobody that could argue that like you're unhealthy or not eating enough too, right? So, yeah. yeah and you know, when I'm being less healthy for breakfast, I'll have uh, like a half of a gluten-free English muffin with some almond butter on it. Um, I like bread. It doesn't like me back. So I have to be really careful with it. Uh, something I recently had to give up, which is like so sad, it was Perrier. Because I would love to have like a Perrier a day and I was noticing my ankles were swelling. And, you know, carbonation dehydrates us and, you know, pushes that water out of the cell and I was retaining. So again, maybe, you know, my 38-year-old self could handle it just fine. My 48-year-old self, not so much. And so I was like, dang it, got to give up that Perrier. So I did, had to write the breakup letter. And it was sad and I miss it, but I'm still alive. I'm still okay. And my ankles are good. So <laughs> and, and it's knowing things like that. Like I, I feel like people just, they're so disassociated with themselves. They don't even really understand like, like, yeah, Perrier equals ankle swelling. Like there just wouldn't even be like the, the association between that because they're, the rest of their body might be so inflamed. They don't even notice the ankles on top of it or just knowing that Perrier is going to do, you know, something like that to their body. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if you have it on occasion, probably no big deal, but for whatever reason I would, you know, it's like, I'll have it and then I'll crave it. So it's just better for me just not to have it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Spiro, I apologize. I got to, I got to run and I've obviously consumed the 90 minutes of your time and stuff too. Um, I'd love to do a part two and day because we just like, we're at the top 10% of like the, all the questions that I want to ask you, but I want you to like take a, a few minutes out and like, like websites, social media handles, like all, all the, the stuff that you want, like all the self-promotion things, like, like how do people get in contact with you? Like Instagram handles, Facebook handles, that whole bit, throw it out there this weekend. And yeah, so like that. Okay. Yeah. You want me to just message that to you? No, say it right now. So people can hear it. And then I'm going to put it in, in your bio too, but I want people to hear it straight from you. Oh, okay. Well, I actually have three websites. You may not know of them all. So, um, sparrowspalding.com. I have healthology.com and that's spelled with an I E on the end. And then I have parentology.com also with an I E on the end. Instagram handle is sparrowspalding. Facebook is Sparrow Spalding. I have a um, healthology Facebook page that's brand new, just came up. And then I have uh, Sparrow Spalding, healthology and parentology YouTube channels that are brand new. Oh. So, uh, well, the healthology and the parentology are brand new. So yeah, so I'm out there. <laughs> and what's your, what's your local area for anybody that might be listening in your local area that might want to be able to contact you to get uh, purchase your services? So, well, I'm in Lincoln, Nebraska, but I, I work online. So, um, yeah. So local to everywhere. Local to everywhere. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking your time out of your day. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Blake. It's been an absolute joy. I hope to talk with you again soon. Thank you so much. All right. Bye.